All right. Thanks so much, worship team. Thanks, Pastor Sarah. And as we get ready and jump into the word today, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We will be continuing on through there. And uh, just wanted to let you know by way of a quick update, uh, we are starting this week and next week uh, for everybody who wanted to be a part of a gathering. We are limited to groups of 10 or less right now in terms of gathering in person, but for everyone who felt like they needed that, uh, we have been spending the last couple of weeks just trying to get our head around it, and so we find ourselves in a place where uh, we have figured out a way to get uh, a little over 16 different groups of 10 through the building every week or two, and all done safely and rightly, no more than one group at a time with all the health and safety precautions in place. So 16 different groups, including children's groups and youth groups and adult groups, and then uh, multiple groups meeting online for uh, life groups and Bible study as well. We have several prayer meetings happening each week, uh, both in person and online, and so we are figuring it out. It has not been the easiest, but we are figuring out a way to make that work, and so uh, some of those will start this week, some of those will start next week, and so um, if you were looking to be part of a group of 10 and uh, you haven't heard yet, just give us a little bit more time, but we are going to be getting that going, and we are excited about that. So we continue on through our series on Revelation. We're going to be here for a while, and uh, as we've said with lots of things in 2021, we hold our plans loosely. We might take a break for a while and go into something else. We might just plow through this for the whole year, uh, or two years, or several years. I don't know. I don't have any idea. Uh, really am living kind of one week at a time when it comes to ministry right now. It's hard to perceive uh, long-term plans at the moment, but we're going kind of Sunday to Sunday. Um, Sometimes when I preach, or sometimes I know as I talk to other preachers, sometimes uh, people will, after a sermon, say, uh, what was the application of that message? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? And it's a very common thing in modern preaching that when you're preaching, you have to have like a homework assignment or a takeaway. And that's not a bad thing at all. It uh, ensures that the word is actually challenging us to change. It challenges us to step out into something. It challenges us to move into something new. But sometimes the text you're in just doesn't necessarily naturally lead to a very clear application or homework assignment or whatever. And sometimes the text is there just to show us something about who God is, and sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that's all the application that we need, is that we see Jesus in a new way, and our response of worship or our response of gratitude, sometimes that's all the application that we need. And so uh, today, and some of the, the verses that we're going to go through in Revelation are going to be like that. There's not necessarily a great like homework assignment to leave with, but if we can see Jesus differently in a new way, or if we can be uh, refilled with awe about who he is, if we can be re-stirred towards humility and worship, then that's plenty. Then that's all that we need. So let's take a look then at our text today. We're in Revelation chapter 1. We'll wrap up the chapter today. Um, we're going to start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in, are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. 
dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So someone commented to me this week that at the rate we're going through Revelation, just kind of a handful of verses at a time, we're going to be in Revelation until Jesus comes back again. And uh, that may be the case, but I also think as we look ahead, there are times coming in this book when we'll cover whole chapters in one day and maybe even a couple of chapters. We might not go in detail to every single verse, but uh, there's sort of broader sections that we'll move through a little bit quicker, but uh, we don't want to rush it either. We want to make sure that we're taking time to really dig into what God's Word says. And so, so far, we're going pretty slow, and we will pick up and slow down at different times as the text allows us. So starting in verse 9 this week then, I, John, we met John last week, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so we met Paul a little bit last week. Uh, we get to know a little more his backstory in these verses. And so uh, John, we talked about, there is a bit of debate about who John is for our purposes. We're going to assume that it is the Apostle John talking. And as he is writing to the churches, obviously he has some authority. We don't know what his relationship was exactly, but he is writing this letter to these churches in the expectation that they are going to listen to what he has to say. And as he introduces himself a little bit more, he introduces himself as your brother, not your leader, not your boss, uh, your brother, right? I am with you. We are on the same level. Jesus would teach about authority, and he would say, yeah, don't be like the rest of the world that lords it over one another, that if you are a follower of me, then your job is to serve. And he would model that by washing feet. He would model that most by going to the cross. Authority in the kingdom does not look like authority in the world. So John says, I am your brother, and I am your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And of those three things, we usually only sing songs about the kingdom, one. We don't do a lot of celebrating about the suffering that's ours in Jesus, or the patient endurance that we have to hold on to because of Jesus. But John says that is part of who we are. I am your fellow companion, your fellow sufferer in the struggles of this life. I am with you in that. We are struggling and suffering as followers of Jesus. And so we don't tend to uh, throw up your hat and cheer an amen when you talk about the suffering of, of Christ that we get to walk in. We celebrate the blessings of Christ and everything that he does for us. Those are easy to cheer about. It's easy to cheer about a great big surplus that God has blessed us with this last year. It's not so fun to cheer about the suffering that we've been through in this last year. 
But John acknowledges, hey, part of what we do here is we suffer. And so the kingdom is ours in Christ, that God has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, brought us out of sin into his righteousness, brought us out of bondage into his freedom. And that is easy to get excited about, but it is also a path of suffering for us. And it's a path that requires patient endurance. I was talking to a friend of mine. He was a colleague when I was in school. Uh, He's a doctor in um, Toronto, and he's a therapist, a Christian counselor. And he was, I chatted with him on Thursday, and he was saying how uh, his practice has just exploded in the last year. Like he's just bursting at the seams. Just people need someone to talk to. People are going through stuff. And I said, well, that's amazing. That's incredible. Uh, And I've gone to counselors off and on for 20 years, and I just can't recommend it highly enough that we, uh, when our bodies are in need of some help, we go see a doctor. When our souls are in need of some help, we don't often deal with that stuff. We just try to power through and pretend like it's not there. But to have a, a professional who is gifted by God and filled with the Spirit and solid in the Word who can help us uh, find some healing and freedom is a hugely important thing. I think everybody should do it, and everybody needs to do it at least from time to time. But he said just people are coming in light of 2020, just they have questions, they have struggles, they're concerns, and they are struggling along, and they are looking for someone to, to help them make sense of it and help them find some peace and help them draw closer to Jesus. And I said, well, broadly, what are you noticing? Like, where where is the... The frustration coming from, where's the fear coming from, where's the anxiety coming from, and just broadly, what sorts of trends are you seeing? What are you noticing as you talk to lots of people who are struggling in this season? And he said, I I haven't stopped thinking about this. It was just a few days ago, but I can't get it out of my head. He said, in every uh, culture, there are spoken rules and then there are unspoken rules. In every household, there are clear rules and then there are unspoken rules. In every church culture, denomination, there's a spoken culture and then there's an unspoken culture. And he said, I really think there's something in North American church which is unspoken. No one would ever say, yes, I believe that. It's an unspoken thing. But in the North American church, he said, I really think there is a belief that bad things shouldn't happen to me that I am blessed and I am highly favored and God is my shield and he is my provision and all of our songs are about victory and everything good that he does and the blessings and the freedom and the forgiveness and we emphasize that in our worship and we emphasize that in our preaching and we emphasize that in the way that we pray and he says, I really do think there's this sort of unspoken thing that bad things aren't supposed to happen to us because God is so good and he is on our side and so we've kind of removed suffering out of our theology But you can't read the New Testament without seeing suffering as being part of what we do. And again, we don't sing songs about it, and we don't celebrate it, but it's there. Like from the life of Jesus onward to the end of Revelation, that suffering is part of the path of the Christ follower, that we're happy to follow Jesus in his parables, and we're happy to follow Jesus in his example, and we're happy, happy to follow Jesus in his call to love, and, and those things all are a little easier than Jesus saying, you're also going to have to pick up your own cross and follow me in the path of suffering at times. And that's not something that we need to to let overwhelm us. It's just the reality. It's just the fact. If we remove suffering out of our theology, we are always going to be discouraged when it comes. And we're going to become people who say, well, maybe I didn't pray hard enough. Maybe I didn't believe hard enough. Maybe I didn't, uh, you know, press through hard enough. It's like, no, suffering is a part of this life. And Jesus lived that suffering out. Jesus doesn't come and undo suffering when he walks the earth amongst us. Jesus comes and suffers. 
And the promise is not that you'll avoid it. The promise is not that following Jesus is a get-out-of-suffering-free card. It's maybe a get-out-of-eternal-suffering-free card. But the promise is that, no, in your suffering, his grace will be sufficient. That there is hope in the suffering. That there will be redemption to it. In one way or another, the suffering will be redeemed. In one way or another, he will work all things for good. But it doesn't mean we get to avoid it altogether. And so what we need then is the patient endurance that is talked about here. And man, I remember any time I would hear a preacher talk about patience, something in me would go, ugh. Just the, the impatience in me would just buck up against it. I want things quicker than they sometimes come when I'm waiting on God for something. And, you know, if we can start to see where is God at work in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, then we can start to rejoice a little bit and be grateful and say, hey, in the last year, surely patient endurance is something that God is developing in every single one of us, right? Surely we are all growing in the area of patient endurance. And I have found in my life when God wants to grow patience in my life, he simply puts me in places where I have no choice but to wait, where I can't make anything happen, I can't force anything to happen, I can't fast forward anything, I just have no choice but to wait. And the last year, that's been us. We have been in this season that's required patience and endurance, and so it doesn't always feel fun when you're in it, but we know that we are being stretched, we are being developed, he is doing his work, we will be more patient and more enduring when this is all over. So John acknowledges, hey, brothers and sisters, I am suffering with you, that the suffering is ours in Jesus, the kingdom is ours in Jesus, patient endurance are ours in Jesus. And as a reflection of that in John's life, he says, I'm on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So Patmos is a small island. There's a picture of it there today. Uh, it is technically a part of Greece today, although it is closer to Turkey. It's just off the coast of Turkey, and you can take cruise ships there now, and it's, it looks very beautiful. I've never been, uh, but all the pictures online are pretty stunning. And so John is there, and our, our understanding, it's not crystal clear, but I think there's a, a general consensus amongst scholarship that John is on the island in exile. He has been sent there uh, by whoever the authorities were that he fell afoul of because of his preaching. And so it doesn't seem like he's in prison. It doesn't seem like he's even under house arrest, like Paul would be uh, when Paul gets to Rome. But it seems like he is just, he's on this island. They don't want him spreading the word. They don't want him preaching what he's preaching. And so because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus, he finds himself in exile on this island. And so he has been preaching things that the authorities don't like. And and so he's been preaching the word, he says, and probably more scandalous in that time, the testimony of Jesus is that he is going around saying Jesus is Lord. He's going around saying Jesus is alive. He is going around and he is sharing the gospel. He is going around pointing to Christ. And because of that, he finds himself in suffering as well. He is on this island. Uh, and so next week, we'll get a little more into the churches that he's talking to. But each of these churches is also suffering and also struggling. And so I like that John starts off just by saying, hey, I'm suffering with you guys. Not, I'm above you guys. Not, where's your faith at? Not, why aren't you more hopeful? But guys, I am suffering too. We're all suffering. And so I am going to reach out to you on that level. And there is something about our suffering that if it, we let it, 
can make us more compassionate. It can make us more sensitive, right? As we have gone through things this past year, and you go, oh, well, we can't gather as a church, and that really sucks, but there are places in the world that can never gather as a church because Christianity is illegal there, and you might die. And so maybe this makes us more compassionate towards them. If you're going through struggles in your marriage, maybe that makes you more compassionate towards others who are struggling in their marriage. If you've recovered and gone through a serious illness, it makes you more compassionate to the next person who's going through an illness, right? We know how to act. We know how to love better. We know how to be supportive. We know how to be encouraging. We know how to be hopeful. The Word of God says in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice as you follow after Jesus in this way. And that's not the sort of thing, if we'd all been in a room this morning where we said, hey, here's the surplus, woo, right? Everyone would have cheered. It would have been an exciting moment if I stood up here and said like, hey, guys, it's going to be a lot harder to follow Jesus in days to come because persecution will eventually come to Canada in one way or another. Woo, yeah. It's not something we cheer about, but Scripture calls us more than once to rejoice in our sufferings, not because we like the suffering itself, but we rejoice in what God is doing in us. We rejoice that he is preparing us for eternity. We rejoice that he is shaping our bad character into good character. We rejoice that he's making us more like Christ. And one of the things Christ did was suffer without whining and complaining, was suffer and, and go into it trusting God was going to redeem him. So we're not victims ever as followers of Jesus. Whatever we are going through, we're not victims. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. Even in our suffering, we can't lose. It's all good. He is working it all out for our good. One of my struggles in this season has been, uh, as we have seen some of our brother and sister churches that have uh, wanted to rebel in this time and wanted to remain open and wanted to fight and push back, that as I see the different uh, you know, preachers sharing, is that uh, my thought in watching all of it is you can either rejoice in your suffering uh, as a, a persecution as you follow after Jesus, or you can play the victim card and complain about how unfair things are and your rights and privileges and everything. But you can't do both at the same time. You can't be joyfully victorious even in suffering while also complaining all the time about how put upon you are. And that's something that you don't see in the New Testament. There is not a lot of whining and complaining in the suffering. They went, okay, if this is what it costs to follow after Jesus, then that is what it costs to follow after Jesus. We'll be joyful in him. We don't have to love the scenario, but we'll be joyful in him and in his grace to get us through this. Moving on to verse 10 of our text today. On the Lord's day, Paul writes, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so we'll get into those churches in the weeks to come. And so the Lord's day is almost certainly a Sunday. It just means Sunday morning. Uh, in the early church, they would often, the Jewish Christians would go to synagogue, Jewish synagogue on Saturday, because that's the Jewish Sabbath. And so they would have their Jewish uh, gathering and reading of scriptures and everything. And then they would gather on Sunday mornings because that's when they could proclaim Christ really freely 
and celebrate Jesus for where their Jewish brothers and sisters might not be ready to do that yet. And so Sunday morning became kind of a second service, and they would celebrate Jesus, they would have communion, they would read the scriptures, and then eventually that just became the day, and they chose Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and so it felt appropriate to celebrate Sunday. So he is most likely just talking about a Sunday. Uh, some think it might even talk, be talking about Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but it's probably just a Sunday morning. He is having his time with the Lord, and he says he was in the Spirit, and it's a phrase that doesn't get a clear definition in Scripture necessarily, but the suggestion certainly is he is having an a unusual encounter with the presence of the Lord. And he is, he is in the presence of God in an unusual way. And we would see in the Old Testament, people like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel would get in the spirit and they would get visions of heaven and, and visions on earth and prophetic words. We see in the book of Acts times when the Holy Spirit is poured out and miracles happen and prophetic words come. And so he is in a, it seems like the phrase suggests just a, a moment of unusual communion with God. The Holy Spirit is with us always, every moment, every day. Uh, we don't have to, to engage with him in that sense. He's always here. Uh, and yet I hope, certainly, you have had times where you have felt especially close to him, whether it was a worship service or some Bible time or a prayer time or a group time. Uh, so John is having an unusual communion with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, write down what you see. Uh, not just write down what you hear, but write down what you see, because John is about to be taken into a vision. And so a vision is basically a dream that happens when you're awake. And so, you know, we've all had dreams, obviously. I think far less, if any of us have had a vision on this level, certainly. But uh, you know what a dream feels like, and it's very vivid, it's very real, uh, it's very symbolic often in, in Scripture, and, and it points to spiritual realities through different symbols. But a vision happens when you're awake. And so we don't know if that means that uh, is, is John actually literally seeing things in front of him, or is it all happening sort of in his imagination? Or is the Lord ripping the veil away where he's literally seeing things with his eyes? You know, the, the veil between heaven and earth is kind of gone and he's seeing into the spiritual realm. We don't really know how to answer that stuff. But he is walking very close to the Lord in this moment. And the Lord is revealing something to him that he is to write down. And so we talked in the earlier weeks that John is the author of Revelation, but John also makes clear he's really just the scribe. Jesus is the one doing the talking. John is just recording everything that he's seeing and everything everything that he is hearing. And so when a vision happens in scripture, uh, and this is important when it comes to revelation, we don't typically put a lot of weight into the literal thing that we're seeing. And I think that's a mistake we make with Revelation, is that when it comes to Revelation, some just want to take everything black and white, crystal clear, literally, and we don't normally do that with other dreams or visions in the Scripture. We understand that they're often highly symbolic. It doesn't mean that they're any less true, but it's often a symbol that points to a very real truth rather than a literal thing itself. So when Pharaoh and Joseph are going through their little dream thing in the Old Testament, no one looks at Pharaoh's dreams and says, well, what are we going to do when cows just start eating up? other cows because the dream was not meant to be taken literally. It was a very important symbol that pointed to a very real truth and a very real application. But we don't need to take everything we see in Revelation literally. We just don't have to approach it that way. We understand in Scripture that visions are highly symbolic and we can be okay with that. And so write down what you see, Jesus says. Send it to the seven churches and we're going to spend the next seven weeks actually digging into each of these churches because Jesus has a specific message 
for each church, but as we talked about last week, the fact that it's to seven literal specific churches doesn't mean it doesn't have application for all churches, and the number seven often just means uh, the complete number or the full amount. This is Jesus' message to just churches in general, although there is certainly application specifically here. Moving on to verse 12, Jesus speaks. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance." And so when Jesus walks the earth, he doesn't look like this, right? Except for a brief moment at the transfiguration where Jesus is temporarily transformed. Jesus looks just like a man. Here we are seeing Jesus in his glorious state, in the fullness of his uh, deity in heaven. And so he doesn't look the way he looked on earth. If he looked that way on earth, it probably would have been a lot more terrifying. And maybe people would have responded more. Maybe they wouldn't have responded well at all. When Jesus came the first time, he Come somewhat under the radar. Jesus in the glory of heaven is not under the radar, obviously, at all. And so there is a voice. He turns around and he sees this figure who looks like a son of man who is standing amongst these seven lampstands and holding on to seven stars. And uh, we learn from the end of the passage that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches that we are talking about in these uh, verses. So the seven lampstands represent the seven churches and more likely just the church. And there's this beautiful picture here that Jesus is standing amongst the churches that Jesus is with his churches, that he is in the presence of his churches, his churches are in his presence, that Jesus is not just kind of far off in heaven in a whole other realm and we're down here by ourselves, that Jesus stands amongst his church. Hebrews chapter 2 has a verse that talks about Jesus standing in the ecclesia, standing amongst us and worshiping with us, praising the Father with us as he stands in our midst. Matthew talks about where two or more gathered, Jesus says, there I am in the midst of them. And some people want to dismiss that verse and say, well, that's only applying to discipline or or church discipline because that's the context of the passage. But it's not just that. It's that plus Hebrews 2 plus this verse in Revelation tell us that Jesus is in our midst when we are together. When the church is gathering, whether that's here or online, Jesus is amongst us. Jesus stands amongst us and he is there. Uh, So as the Jesus stands amongst the churches, there's, we said last week, almost everything in Revelation has Old Testament connection. Almost everything. Almost every symbol, lots of different scriptural passages. It all ties into Old Testament scripture. And so if we look at the Old Testament scripture, we can understand what Revelation is saying to us. So a key Old Testament passage that John is tying into here and that this vision is pointing to is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So Daniel speaks and says, In my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." 
And so in Daniel's vision, you know, centuries before Jesus walks the earth, he sees one like a son of man, a son of man. And that was Jesus' most common title for himself. Somewhere around 70 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And it's referring back to this passage in Daniel, centuries before Jesus would come. And so in this passage from Daniel, we see there's one like a son of man, which is to say a human being. This is someone who is a human, looks like a human, does not look like a god, does not look like uh, the stereotypes of God, does not look like the idols or the statues of the time that one came who looked like a man. But yet, he came with the clouds of glory. He wasn't just coming from the earth. He was coming from heaven. And this man approaches the Ancient of Days, which is a, a term used for God that just points to his eternal nature, that God is more ancient even than days are. For as long as days and time have existed, God is more ancient than that. And if that gives your brain a wrinkle, it should. It's hard to get your head around. But the Ancient of Days, the one beyond time who sits on the throne, this figure like a son of man comes before the throne of God and is given authority and glory and power. All nations and peoples will worship him. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So there is this one who looks human but is so much more than human. There is one coming, Daniel is saying, to the Jewish people who will look human but will be so much more. There will be something heavenly. There will be something divine. He's going to have all the authority in the world. And how amazing, looking back in history, when you say the Jewish nation is a, always has been a tiny nation, has always been very small percentage of the world. But Daniel's like, this son of man, when he comes, is going to be worshipped by every tongue, every language, every nation is going to worship him. And we get to see that in our day. We get to see every language worshiping Jesus. We get to see people globally, worldwide worshiping him. In human terms, this would seem completely impossible. How could this tiny nation ever have anybody that the whole world would worship? And yet we see that in our time. Jesus is worshiped. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so this is all pointing by Daniel to obviously the Messiah to come. He's going to look like a man. He's not going to look glorious like a God. And yet he's coming from heaven. And he will have all of the attributes of deity, uh, all of the attributes of God. And when he's unpacking, uh, in John's passage today, when he's unpacking all of these things about what he sees, all of these pictures about Jesus have Old Testament connections. The white hair, the blazing eyes, the, the glowing like the sun, the, even the robe and the sash, the feet, the voice like the waters, the sword coming out of the mouth, uh, speaking to just the power and authority when God speaks. And so it is not that uh, Jesus is a man who's just a great prophet or just a great Messiah. Uh, you might remember a number of years ago, Remember when the Da Vinci Code came out and it was like a big deal? There was the book, The Da Vinci Code. It was a bestseller uh, and then it became a movie and it was like a blockbuster movie. Tom Hanks was in it. And The Da Vinci Code came out. And I remember I was a young pastor at that point. That would have been the early 2000s. And uh, there was a bit of wariness from pastors, not fear necessarily, but there was a bit of concern about this book that was coming out. Because one of the things that this book claimed, and it was pure fiction, it wasn't a historical book, but the book claimed that 
Uh, the church sort of invented the deity of Christ centuries after Jesus, that the church really wanted to, to make the religion take off. They wanted more power. And so the church kind of got together and decided, well, we have this guy, Jesus, who we admire. You know what? If he was a god, then that would really give this thing some power. And so the church kind of got together in the third or fourth century and decided that they were going to sort of add deity to Jesus, that up until that point, Jesus was just a good man who was admired. And then they decided to add that to him. And so pastors were just a little concerned, again, not necessarily fearful, but, uh, oh man, like what if some people believe that? What if that becomes kind of mainstream? What if that, it's not a new thought at all. There's been accusations of that forever, but, you know, it doesn't even make sense, just objectively, wherever your faith is at, because we know for sure that the books of the New Testament were all written in the first century. So the earliest ones uh, in the decades after Jesus, all of them within uh, about, say, 60, 70 years of when Jesus had walked the earth. All of those books were written in that time. And so when John sees Jesus and sees him as this figure with the blazing eyes and the voice like the waters and the radiance like the sun, this is John saying Jesus is God. Jesus has these qualities of God from the Old Testament. From the very beginning, the church said, this is not just a man. This is not just a prophet. This is not just someone to be admired. This is not just a great teacher. From the very beginning, the testimony of the church has been Jesus is not just a prophet. He is God himself. And passages like this help us to see that. That as he looks upon Jesus in heaven in his glorified state, that anyone who is a Jewish believer in the first century would say, oh, the, Jesus has a voice like the rushing waters. Well, God has a voice like the rushing waters in Ezekiel. Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, Isaiah said the Lord has a sword coming out of his mouth. So there's no confusion in the early church about who Jesus is. Jesus is the fullness of man as son of man, and he is the fullness of God as we see in these verses. And John's reaction upon seeing this glorified Jesus with blazing eyes and a sword mouth and voices like Niagara Falls, you know, sounds like that coming out of his mouth. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so upon seeing Jesus in the fullness of who he is, John's reaction is just, I'm done. Something about that. And that's a pretty typical reaction throughout both testaments of Scripture. When someone sees an angel or has an encounter with the Lord, uh, the reaction is almost always fear. And I've never been in that boat to see things that clearly before, but I imagine that there is just something about seeing the, the fullness of the glory of God, the holiness of God, the purity of God, that when sinful man sees that face-to-face -face in that intense a way, the reaction just seems to be fear. And, and we we see that throughout both testaments. And so John falls down in fear. How beautiful is this? Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. Jesus places a hand, just a, an encouraging, gentle, loving touch, knowing that John is afraid of what he is seeing because the glory of God is just that big. Jesus comes and just lays a hand on him and says, don't be afraid. And the Greek literally means it's a commandment that's like, stop fearing. Stop fearing. You don't need to be afraid in my presence. Not because you're so holy and pure and righteous like I am, but because Jesus has made the way for us. 
Because Jesus has died for us and removed our sin from us, we can boldly come before the throne of grace. We don't have to be afraid of his presence. And so Jesus puts a hand on John and says, John, stop fearing. And then he reminds John about who he is. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And again, all of these things have Old Testament, Testament biblical connections. Isaiah 44, 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So again, no confusion about who Jesus is. Jesus is the same God that Isaiah is talking about. Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And that name shows up about God a lot in the Old Testament. Unlike idols, which are dead, and unlike things of stone and wood, which are dead, God is alive. He is the living God. And again, no confusion that Jesus is one and the same as the living God. Isaiah 53, 11 says that after he, the Messiah, has suffered, he will see the light of life again and be satisfied. One of Isaiah's prophecies, somewhere around 800 years before Jesus was born, that the Messiah would suffer, and then he would arise again. He would be resurrected. And so from the very beginning, the church has confessed that Jesus died, and there's no denying that he died, but that he rose again. And when Jesus reveals himself, it's, I was dead, but now, look, I am alive forever and ever. He will not die again. He is the living one, and he lives forever and ever. So we talked last week about how he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and everything in between. He knows everything that is going to happen, has happened, will happen, and he is in control of all of it. And then he says, I hold the keys of death, and I hold the keys of Hades. And so just the reminder that as God, he's in control of death. Ultimately, death is his his venue. Hades is the, we'll get into this a little bit later, uh, the understanding in the Greek world was Hades was kind of the holding place of the dead, and in Christian circles, the belief that Hades is the place where the dead await judgment day, and, and, and judgment day determines whether we're in heaven or whether we're in the lake of fire. We'll get into that later in Revelation, but either way, Jesus is the one in control. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the one who will judge us at the end of life. Jesus is the one who determines who goes where. Keys represent authority. He's the one in charge, right? I have authority over my own house. You do not have authority to come into my house. If I lend Wes my keys, then Wes has the authority to come into my house. Whoever holds the keys holds the authority. And Jesus is just reminding that he is the one in charge of just everything because he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As he wraps up these verses, Jesus says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this is two hugely important things when it comes to Revelation that these verses tell us. Number one, Jesus clearly says, some of what's happening in Revelation is happening now, and some of it is going to happen later. And we talked in the first week about how we live in a time where most of us were taught that the way you approach Revelation is that it's all stuff that's going to happen later. 
It's all futuristic stuff. And the danger of that is that it turns us into fortune tellers where we're trying to almost like divine from the scriptures every little symbol of what this means and what that means and how are we going to see this and when's that going to happen and how do we know if we're in it or how do we know if we're out of it? And we get obsessed with like the futuristic side of what this all means. And we can overinterpret and overinterpret and overinterpret when everything is there. Jesus clearly says some of this is already happening now. Some of it's happening now. So there's always a lot of conversation, for example, about the mark of the beast, right? And we'll get there someday. Uh, the mark of the beast, that, that a time will come. In Revelation, it talks about that uh, for those who worship the beast figure, uh, there'll be a mark on your hand or on your forehead, and no one will buy or sell with you. No one will be able to sell you anything. You won't be able to buy anything if you don't get this mark of the beast. And so, um, so every time some new technology comes up, Christians go, ah, the mark of the beast, right? It's going to be our cell phones. It's going to be, you know, the thumb pad that you use to buy things. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. It's going to be snuck into your flu shots. And we've had conversations with some of you about, you know, are the masks that we have to wear right now connected to that? Or are they setting us up for that? And here's two things about the mark of the beast. We will get there and we'll spend more time on this. But two things I'll tell you now. Number one is that the mark of the beast is about who are you giving your allegiance to in your life. It has nothing to do with business practices or anything like that. It's about are you denying Christ in order to follow the beast, whoever the beast is or whatever it is. So it's not going to get like snuck into your cell phone or snuck into your flu shot or anything like that. You have to switch allegiance from Christ to whatever the beast is in order for that to be something we need to worry about. The second thing about it, and this is hugely important, it's already happened in history. It's already been fulfilled. It was happening in the, the now that Jesus is talking about here. Does that mean it won't happen again? No, I, I think we always should be aware of it. But it's already happened in history. There was a time and a place where you had to worship Caesar, and if you didn't, no one would buy or sell with you. That was a thing that happened in history. And so it's already been fulfilled. And so that's the danger of an entirely futuristic look of this book is that it gets us so obsessive about the details and the things. And I am finding it makes us unusually paranoid and unusually cynical. So we have to recognize that some of this is happening now for the church of the first century that these letters are going to directly. Some of it is going to happen later, right? And obviously big things like, hey, Jesus hasn't come back yet. So there are things that are to come, but we need to have those things in mind as we go through that. So that's one of the big things we need to notice, hugely important to Revelation, is that some of it's already happened, some of it's going to happen later. We need to recognize that. The other part is, is that there are a bazillion, that's an official word, bazillion weird things that happen in this book. Right? There's all sorts of weird symbolism. There's weird pictures. There's, there's monsters and there's frogs and there's you know, a creature coming out of the sea and a creature coming out of the abyss and a horseman flying and, and locusts that look like human cavalry soldiers. And there's all sorts of crazy symbolism and everybody can get very, very uptight trying to wrestle through all of the symbolism and try to figure out what it all means. And I'm not saying we shouldn't wrestle through that stuff, but in these verses today... There is a little bit of weird symbolism. Oh, why is Jesus holding seven stars in his hands, right? Why has Jesus got seven lampstands among him? But here's the thing, and again, one of the most important things I can teach you about Revelation. So if you're writing stuff down, this is something to write down. Jesus wraps up these verses by saying, hey, the mystery that you saw there is this. The seven stars represent the seven angels. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches. This is the key. When it's really important for Jesus 
that we understand the symbolism of Revelation, he just tells us clearly what it means. He just tells us clearly. There's no mystery. We're not debating what do the seven lampstands mean because Jesus told us it's the churches. We're not debating what are the seven stars. Jesus says these are the seven angels of the churches, and we'll come to that next week. And so when it's truly important for us to understand the symbolism of Revelation, Jesus just tells us clearly what it means. Man, does that take the pressure off. I don't have to worry about, oh, what if I miss this? What if I miss that? Now, there's a lot of symbols that he doesn't tell us that clearly what they mean. And to me, that just means we don't have to be as concerned about those. When Jesus really wants us to know what something means, he just tells us. Come on up, worship team. We're wrapping up here. He just tells us. And so we don't need to stress and strain. Nobody reading this in the first century would have been freaking out about every possible interpretation of every possible symbol. That's just not how they would have approached the book. They would have approached it as the broad message that it is. And, and they would have understood that, okay, well, Jesus wants us to know that lampstands equal churches and the stars equal angels. And so we'll focus on that and we'll take that to heart. If he doesn't clearly interpret what another symbol is, then we can be okay with that. If he, he must not want us to know that badly, and it's not actually going to be that important then to our understanding of this book. So what do we do then with all of this? As I said at the beginning, sometimes just seeing Jesus a little bit clearer is enough. Sometimes just letting maybe some of those phrases we heard today, that he is the first and the last, that he is the living one, that he was dead, but now he is alive forever and ever. Sometimes that is enough. And as the revelation of Jesus Christ comes through this book, uh, we're going to get in a little bit longer. We're going to go through the churches over the next number of weeks. And then we're actually going to get into the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And we're actually going to get to see what John saw when he was face to face with the glory of God and the angels 10,000 times 10,000 worshiping him. Sometimes the only application from a biblical text is I know Jesus better and I'm going to worship him with gratitude. Sometimes that's it. We don't have to make everything into a work. We don't have to make everything into something that we go out and do. Sometimes worship is enough. And today is one of those passages. We have seen Jesus in his glory. We have learned more about who he is and we can respond in worship to that. And so we're going to move into worship as we get ready to close this morning. I'll pass it back to the worship team. Uh, I know it can be a little awkward to sing. And sometimes even if it's just like our family in our living room, that can feel a little bit weird. But I, I will just always encourage people in worship, even if you're here in the room, like don't sing to the screen. Like don't get locked onto the words. Don't sing half-heartedly. Uh, John Wesley said, when it comes to worship, he said the phrase he actually used was, sing lustily. Not lustfully, which is a whole other thing, but sing lustily. He meant with passion that God is worth that and God is asking for that. And so sing this to him. And I'm not saying it has to be loud or, or anything, but just make sure it's to him, right? We sing happy birthday to someone and we wanna to, to bless them on their birthday. Sing this to him this morning to bless him as we worship the living one this morning.